Chapel Hill. Morning. So good to hear you. For those of you joining us online, it is so good to see you this morning as well. Thanks so much for joining us from wherever you are. Y'all, welcome to week two of Praying the Psalms. This series that we are in for the summer, where we together are praying um, in, in the Psalms together. It is, it is this space of the work of prayer and psalm together as we are orienting ourselves, orienting our lives as we walk along the narrow way of Jesus. And in doing so, one of our goals is to slow down. Slow down. Wish we could hear that a little more often in all. And we're dropping them to you in an email on Monday email list, sending out the, the psalm for the week that we can pray it together each day. So if you are not yet on uh, the Love Chapel Hill mailing list, you can do that uh, by filling out the connect card there at the, on the Sunday page, and that will immediately get you enrolled in that list. So we can get that out to you this week. But as we pray these psalms, our goal is to put on the psalm to actually take on the words of the psalmist as our own. To actually take on the words of the psalmist as our own. That the psalm becomes our own prayer. And just a little bit of recap. The psalms are made up of 150 pieces of poetry assembled into five books. It's a collective makeup of the prayer book of Israel. It captures the full sweep of God's story from creation to the restoration of all things. Nearly half of them are connected or attributed to David, King David. The others are attributed to his son Solomon and other kings of Israel or other psalmists, some of which are anonymous. Together, I want to encourage you to do that aloud praying them, reading them aloud so that we are speaking them and we are hearing them at the same time. We're aligning ourselves with the Holy Spirit in prayer, the divinely inspired word falling upon our ears. Some Psalms will speak to you more so than others in different times and different places. And so we just acknowledge that, right? All of them have something to say to us but it is in different times and different spaces that some may be more relevant or it may draw out in us what God is speaking into that time and that space. And so we get, as we get into our psalm today, I just want to encourage you that God has grace for us. Grace upon grace upon grace. And he is ready to meet with us here in this place I don't know what you are going through this morning, what kind of news you've gotten over the past week, what kind of celebration you have been a part of. There are all of the experiences of life represented among us, even knowing those who have gotten the news, the news of the loss of a loved one or an illness, a diagnosis, those among us who are also celebrating amazing news. All of it, the Psalms 
speak to us. They capture the depth of the human experience. And so wherever you are today, whether this challenges you or it comforts you, we're going to dive in and see more of who God is and who we are in relationship to him and catch a glimpse ultimately of his kingship over all the earth. God, we just acknowledge you are in our midst today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, as we dive into this psalm, Psalm 24, may it speak to us as you would have it to today, wherever we are. God, whatever we need to hear from it, may it just capture our hearts and our minds that as we pray it today and as we pray it in the days ahead, that it just continues to speak because your word is alive. It is alive among us as we read it and as we hear it. God, speak to us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So there on the Sunday page, there is Psalm 24. And we are going to read it together. So we'll take it slow. We're just going to let it speak to us as we take this first pass through it. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. This psalm has three distinct sections. It is first section, really the ownership of the world. Second section is capturing our relationship, our connection to the owner of the world. And then three is the welcoming of the presence of the king, welcoming in the return of the king. So the first two verses, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. What other parts of scripture come to mind when you hear those first two verses? Anything? Yeah. Yeah. Genesis, the beginning. That's right. The creation narrative. 
right? Creation is the first thing that comes to our minds, and it certainly would be the first thing that comes to the minds of the people of Israel as they are hearing this psalm in exile. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The waters in ancient Israel literature represent chaos. Chaos is what is being spoken over as all of creation comes into existence. God is establishing order in the midst of chaos. He spoke it all into existence and then got down in the dirt to make humankind with his hands and to make it in his image. And so every time we pray it, every time we read it together, we are seeing the Lord work again to speak and establish order in chaos. I don't know about you all, but I'm experiencing some chaos in the world around us. Anybody? Just me. Okay, yes. Okay, I'm not alone. Good, good. Right? There is chaos all around us. And when we read this psalm, when we pray this psalm, it is a capturing again of speaking order into that chaos. And this is the establishment of God as the rightful owner of creation. Right? The owner of it all who then brought humanity into existence and created us for the purpose of being gardeners, of tending to the creation which was spoken into existence. Not that we are just a part of the created order, but we were created to tend to and care for the created order, the caring for it which is an active call to us. On down in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God did. He created humankind in his image. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the, the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in aligning ourselves in this narrow way of Jesus, we cast off claims of ownership. 
we find ourselves in the role of stewards of every gift that we have been given. Not owners, but stewards. Y'all, C.S. Lewis has an amazing work called the Screw Tape Letters. And the Screw Tape Letters is a compilation of letters drafted from Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood, the senior demon who is giving advice and guidance to the lesser demon who is kind of coming into his own, learning to tempt humanity and lead them astray. So as you read it, you have to know that that is the lens, right? Because when it talks about our father in there, it is talking about the enemy or the evil one. Or when it is talking about the enemy, it is talking about Jesus. And so it is this opposite that we have to understand um, in reading it. I have left you a gift in the resources section on the Sunday page. So the entirety of the audio book of the Screwtape Letters is there available for you to listen to if you are interested. It is um, narrated by John Cleese in the most amazing British accent. Um, And so I commend it to you. (laughs) Um, You may have to listen to it multiple times, but it is absolutely priceless. So with that, there is a section in letter 21 of the 30, I think it's 32 letters. Don't quote me on that. Somewhere around there. Um, Letter 21 gets to ownership and what, what the enemy, our enemy, would have us to believe. So I'm going to share a section of that with you. Um, so this is, a, this is a truncated version of letter 21. <laughs> Since the more claims on life that your patient, the person that they are trying to tempt, your patient can be induced to make the more often He will feel injured and as a result, ill-tempered. Now you have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find attractive time, which he reckoned on having at his own disposal, unexpectedly taken from him. You must zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful professor of 24 hours. You have a delicate task here. The assumption which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we cannot find a shred of argument in its defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his chattels. He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy, of Jesus. The sense of ownership, in general, is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. We produce this, this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, what's up, Paul Bunyan, my servant, my wife, 
my father, my child, my master, my country, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. We have taught men to say my God in a sense not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services. And all the time, the joke that, that is the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them. Whatever happens. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. Give it a listen. John Cleese is way better at this than I am. That all is the Lord's because he made it. And the enemy, our enemy, is always trying to convince us otherwise. And so as stewards, we can't help but talk about stewardship. For those of you who have been around church for a little while, you hear the word stewardship and you're like, oh snap, we're about to talk about the church budget. Um, (laughs) This is not the case. I promise that this is a much more holistic view and it is a radical surrendering of all that we have and all that we are. There are really four key areas of stewardship. That is the stewardship of time, the stewardship of creation, the stewardship of our resources. You can put your finances and the church budget in that category if you want to, um, as you should. And then the stewardship of relationships. So in the stewardship of time, we acknowledge that every moment is holy because it is a gift. It is a gift given to us, that which we have no control. And as Uncle Screwtape reminded us, we cannot create one more minute or retain one minute because it is a gift. And Jesus gives us multiple images of what it means to spend our time through different parables that he spoke. But the idea of a servant waiting on their master to return from afar. That when the master returns, we will give an account for what we have done with our time, or that of of the talents even captures the usage of time. The one who didn't do the work of investment, right, is cast away in that parable. Then the stewardship of creation. Y'all, each of these, we could talk for an hour on each of these areas of stewardship. I'm going to spare you that. Um, But to catch at a high level, right, the creation stewardship that we have as our responsibility. What we do with creation matters. What we do with the natural resources that we have been given on this earth matters. 
It can be the thought that this earth is at one point going to just burn up and that there will be some new creation. And there is a new creation to come, but y'all, it is born out of this one. And what we do with this one will impact our ability to engage with the new heaven and new earth that is to come. In seminary, one of our professors, a professor of ethics, challenged us with this, that being a Christian, being full follower of Jesus, should be, should make us mindful of even what we put in our garbage. And so as we think about the depth of which this faith runs and this narrow way of Jesus, does it take us that far? As we think about our stewardship of creation, does it take us to the point of thinking about what we put in our garbage? Because, y'all, it doesn't just evaporate when it goes, like, out to the curb. (laughs) If wishing made it so. Reduce, reuse, recycle, my PSA for the day. Start it in that order, okay? Mm. Stewardship of our finances. Y'all, this is the radical way of giving. One of the commands early on to the people of Israel was a tithe, a tithe of their first fruits. And that's not just money, y'all. That's their harvest, their livestock, the resources that they had been given to give of the first fruits, 10% to give it in service of the temple. Right, and that is a radical way for us even today, right? We try to pinch every single penny, and rightfully so. But we acknowledge that everything comes from the Lord, just in our generosity prayer that we prayed this morning, right? That is a key element of our worship, that we surrender and we give with generous hearts. There's a reason as a mark of Love Chapel Hill, we call it courageous generosity because it's not easy and it can be scary to surrender those first fruits. We trust in the Lord for his provision. Y'all, I got a call earlier this week to speak about radical, the radicalness of this and the courageous generosity. We've had a dream around here for a little while and it is formulating and, and unfolding for something called the Love House. And it is what we hope and dream to be the front porch in the living room of Love Chapel Hill, a place that we gather in, in downtown. Um, don't know what that looks like, but if you want to dream with us, I invite you into that space to let me know. But y'all, somebody sold a house this week. And the first thing they did was called to say, The first fruits of this cell are for Love Chapel Hill and for the seed to fund this love house to the tune of $38,000. That is the radical way, the narrow way that Jesus calls us to in surrendering all that we have and all that we are. The stewardship of what he has given us And as I continued to be blown away and speechless at this phone call, I was just, I was overflowing with gratitude and just sharing that 
But the comment back to me was, it wasn't mine to begin with. That's a sign of the transformed heart to be a steward of what God has given. Mm. No, and then the stewardship of relationships. It's hard to move on from that. Let's just sit in that for a minute, right? So good. Mm. And yet challenging at the same time, right? Stewardship of relationships, how we care for and engage the people in our lives, those around us, something like the loving of our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture of that, that the door to who our neighbor is is not just the person dwelling next to us. Whether we're caring for a loved one, caring for our children, showing our spouse the radical love of marriage, right? there is stewardship of every relationship that we have because as people come into our lives, those two are gifts, even the challenging ones, even those for whom we may differ politically or theologically or in practice, whatever that may look like, right? We all come from different places and it is, it can be challenging to be good stewards of those relationships. But that is a part of this as well. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul commends to us again, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. But since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And that's in all that we do. And so as good stewards, we do this not out of fear of some retribution if we don't, but out of great reverence and great love for the maker, for the creator, our Lord. So on in section two, we dive on down, right? We are all created, all of humanity, created for the garden for perfect communion with our Creator, but y'all, something happened. It got busted. And we were exiled from the garden. Sin and death enter in when Adam and Eve believe the lie that they are better off on their own. To be masters, to be owners of their own destiny, instead of being the stewards that they were called to be. And so in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, we get a, a picture of this question of who can even ascend, who can be in the presence of the Lord, because we're not in that garden. Though as we look around at this beautiful garden space and we dream of what that might look like, there is still brokenness here. And so who may be in the presence of the Lord? That is this question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord to stand in his holy place? And the answer is the one who has clean hands 
and a pure heart? I'm not going to ask that question among us, right? But we can ponder it. Who among us has clean hands and a pure heart that has not trusted in some other idol or sworn by some other false god? Right? That, that person may ascend and stand in the presence of the Lord. The historic context of this, David, right? This is a psalm of David. And so David is actually working to move the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God's presence that was with the people of Israel, to move it from a town, a little village outside of Jerusalem, into Jerusalem where he is reigning as king. That the presence of the Lord should be dwelling in that place. And the Ark of the Covenant was the representation and, in fact, the actual physical manifestation of God's presence. And so in moving, David is, is writing this psalm and asking this question because he's got to move it, right? He is responsible for moving it into this place. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can read that story, but David moves it literally six feet at a time. These people who are making sacrifices to remain clean, to be in God's presence, every six feet, it it is a pause to stop, make sacrifice, celebrate the Lord, and then move a little bit further. And so just a little bit at a time, the ark and the presence of God is moved. David also dances with no clothes on. That's a part of the story. If you want to keep going with that, it's (laughs) worth the read. Um, But Proverbs chapter 20 also captures this. Who can say that I have made my heart clean, that I am pure from my sin? Because it's not something that we can do on our own. We need the Lord to make us clean in order to stand in his presence. There's a part of this story because the people are in exile in Babylon as they are reading this, the people of Israel would have in their minds also the reality that God's presence leaves the temple as Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon. And so the pain of that experience, knowing that their own turning away from God resulted in the downfall of the, of the temple and the presence of God leaving that place. And so how then, as people in exile, do we experience and stand in the presence of God? It is section three that gets at that, welcoming the presence. In fact, the return of the king. It says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So when David writes this, y'all, the temple had not even been built yet. And that he could even see somehow forward a returning of God's presence and that it requires a a huge door for that to happen, right? The ancient doors being lifted, being opened into this place 
that God might return. The people in exile speaking hope to them that God's presence would return. It's repeated twice, right? It is nearly the same words, right? Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Y'all, I was at a wedding last night, and um, the, the dance after the wedding is like super celebratory, right? Um, Riley and Avery were with me. We're working the dance floor. It was fantastic. Y'all have a pastor that dances at weddings, okay? In the event that you are considering marriage, just know that I may embarrass you in that way. Because <laughs> um, I'm not a good dancer, as Riley and Avery will also attest. But y'all at these, right, in, in a dance like this, right, there's the song Shout. We're like, get a little bit louder now. Shout, get a little, no, thank you, Chris get a little bit louder now, shout, right? And so as we see scripture repeated like this, that is what it is getting at, right? Get a little bit louder. It is amplifying the reality here. And so as we read this today and as we pray this in the weeks or in the week ahead, as we come to that part where it repeats, you can write in your Bible if you have an old-fashioned paper one, like just write Jesus really big after that second repeat. Because this is what it's getting to, the king of glory coming to set things right. That there is a return from exile, not just from Babylon, but return from the exile from the garden. And so the commendation to us to open the gates, open the doors that the presence may come in. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. That as we read this, it is about the presence of the Lord entering into us, acknowledging the Holy Spirit alive in us and ready to help us on this journey of the narrow way to return from exile to the garden that he created for us. That the God of the cosmos, the maker of heaven and earth, who holds it all in his hands, wants to not just be present with you, but to dwell in you. And so today, as we come to the table, as we come week after week to this table to participate in Holy Communion, it is a return from that exile demonstrated right before us that the Lord intends to dwell in us our lips as the doorposts, our hearts and our minds as the gates that are called to be opened. And so we celebrate that together. As we partake of the bread, reminding us of Jesus' broken body and the cup, his blood poured out for us and for the forgiveness of sin. 
Lord Jesus, as you are among us, even here and now, we ask that you pour out your blessing on these gifts of bread and the cup, that they be for us the body and blood to make us whole, to draw us back to you out of exile and into perfect communion with you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. As you come to the table today, you can come along this side. Our servers will tear off a piece of the bread and hand it to you, and you can dip it in the cup. I just invite you to reflect today. Just to reflect on whose, whose we are. You can take a walk around this beautiful garden, be reminded of that original garden that he is calling us back to. We invite you, all of you, to the table today to taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.